Thank you, Charles. I just, you know, um, something that you know, the, the topic that I wanted to cover today wasn't um, came up in Con Ed often, especially in, at least in my MSR roundtable. Um, it's something that I struggle with. I think we all struggle with it at times, and that's how. What, what do we do surrounding owning and operating costs? You know, what are some tricks to getting it? What are some scenarios in which, you know, what do we do when, we, when they won't give them to us? Uh, what's been successful in, with, with collecting, owning, and operating costs? And, and, you know, everything surrounding that. So I wanted to kick it off because there was a lot of discussion that we had, um, not only at, at Con Ed, but internally here in Columbia. Um, what do you guys do when you aren't able to collect owning and operating costs. I'm just going to open that up. What do you do? Not everybody at once. Roger, that's okay with everybody. So you've phrased the question the right way, in my opinion, because obviously we in the right circumstances, we try to get the owning and operating costs, and we leave behind the, you know, the sheet that they're going to fill out to get back to us. I know for a fact that some MSRs, especially more experienced MSRs, um, will talk about they would not even conduct an assessment until they got the owning and operating costs returned to them. I would tell you that I'm not in that ship. And maybe I should be, but I'm not. I will tell you that if, to answer your question directly, if I don't get it from them, I think I have two, two options. Well, I have a lot of options, but the two options I typically take, A, move forward without, B, move forward with assumptions based on the tonnage that they have and the type of equipment that they have, industry averages. I can tell you that that usually doesn't carry a lot of weight. It's hard for them to, to believe that they had, you know, whatever, X number of thousands of dollars of major repairs or contracted service be this amount. And if I'm way off on that, then we lose credibility. Okay. I can use it with a very a, a prospect with a very, very large contract, $500,000 raw G. Clearly, we didn't get it. But when I, when they did not provide the information and then I used industry averages, they said that we were right on. So the, the answer is either I do industry averages or I move forward with a thousand. Who else? Who, thanks. Thank you, Julio. Who else uses when they don't get the owning and operating costs, uses um, benchmarks or industry averages with their ver in their verification meetings with their customers, and is it successful for you? Okay, I, Matt, I do. Yeah, I, I I strictly use it as a as a talking point, and I always underestimate it. So, like lowball it, if you will. Like for example, on electricity. For um, the safety clean contract that I sold this week, I, they wouldn't give me any costs because they were so busy. And uh, I, I just estimated that they looked like they used about $5,000 a month on power. I just kind of spitballed it. And when I brought that up in the verification meeting, he's like, no, man, we're at $10,000. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and then when I was talking about lost productivity. I said, you know, I don't know what it means when you guys go down, but maybe you guys are making about $10,000 profit, a, you know, per day here at this safety clean facility. He's like, 
No, man, shit, we pumping gold over here. It's $20,000 a day. You know, so I had $20,000. I wrote that down. So lowballing it works for me. And just like what Julio said, if you if you put it too high, I think you lose credibility. But but we have to put something because we have to build up that that spread between the G and what they're already paying, which is normally double. So you got to use something, but putting them too high is a, is a, is not a good thing in my bit in my opinion. But yet using is like, hey, I don't know what you're spending. Is it five thousand? Oh man, it's ten. Okay, thanks. So that's my yeah. experience. Especially when you're using industry averages, you know the industry average is 100 percent based on the total equipment replacement cost. You know, because you're utilizing a, per, a percentage, the one to three or three to five percent of that. So, um, I, I'm with you. Obviously, you know the equipment, right? So when you're looking at is that equipment replacement cost because it's, you know, a lot of you know a few big pieces of equipment, or is it because it's a lot of different stuff? And so, um, that's when you can really look at you know using the low percentage or a or a higher percentage, but if you use the same percentage, then obviously that 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 same amount's going to apply to parts, materials, major repairs, you know, services. You know, it just kind of falls suit. Well, just to add to that, though, um, if you have boilers, though, those don't count as tonnage for cooling. So you really got to think about that a little bit because they don't count as tonnage cooling so but if they have like i had finley house you know they had five boilers and didn't want to talk about anything else for cooling i had to come i had to just come up with some number to put in there so just keep that in mind that it only works for the cooling things not the heating things so matt i'm gonna pick on you for a second or i'll pick on a couple people but you know, a lot of times we use, you know, I do know that at least here in Columbia, it sounds like in Greenville and, and Charleston, we we use sometimes industry benchmarks. But what are some strategies? And I'm not the best at this. This is why I want to talk about this thing, because I'm not I'm not the best at getting owning and operating costs. Um, but what are some strategies you guys are using in the concept meetings to get the buy in of that person to get you costs? Are there strategies you're using? Are you using the action plan to help drive urgency around the cost? What are some things that you guys are doing uh, that could be unique that some of us could benefit from, including myself, for sure? You said you were picking on me. I'm gonna ask you first because you've got your. You, you, you throw out Matt. You've got at least two people that could answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I. The flip book is very helpful in getting the cost, in my opinion, because I'm able to show that pie chart and talk about this is what sets us apart. This is why we're different. Nobody else is talking about this stuff. All they want to do is know how many units you have and it, you know, try to get them to head nod about does it, does it make sense to you about capital avoidance? Does it make sense to you about um, these major repairs? I mean that major repairs that's that's where these other companies are making their money they 
they'll always sign you up for a low retainer for this maintenance contract. They want that low retainer so they make their money on the back end. Our model is totally different. You know, I, I use that pie chart as a way to talking about how we're so different than everybody else. And uh, with that, it's kind of like you're able to ask questions around the pie chart. Um, and then when I get to the very back of the flip book where it talks about the the assessment piece, I always I don't read off every one of those items on the on that on that um, column there. But I do point out the, the financial benchmark there. I talk about, you know, I've got to get these numbers in order to to, to provide a, a, a financial benchmark. And sometimes they act like they're going to give them to me and sometimes they don't. But either way, I move I move right on and keep going. I, I don't try to make too too big of a deal about it. But it, it, if they're like, oh, yeah, I've got that or, oh, yeah, we do that or I've got those numbers, then it's I kind of push forward with it. But. I definitely don't stop if they don't have cost. I mean, I definitely don't stop my process if they don't give me cost. I just, like my verification meeting yesterday, um, I just moved right on past it and, and put what I think it should be in there. And especially like this one yesterday at Hope Health, they didn't have any cost because the equipment was two years old. They didn't have anybody doing the, the maintenance right now. Filters hadn't been changed in two years. And, you know, I'm like, you're grossly underserved. You should be about $10,000 here for preventative maintenance. And you're not, you don't have anything, you know? So like calling them out on like, dude, you don't have anything going on right now. You should at least be having $10,000 where ours is about 16,000. So just being confident that our full coverage program is the way to go for them. If it, if it, if that's what you think what is warranted. So I'll pass it off. I'll pass it to, to uh, Gus. Gus looks like he's ready to go. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate that. Um, no, I think, uh, you know, for for me and in, in my concept meetings, I guess I'm not really coming up against a whole lot of reluctancy to get the owning and operating costs in that moment. Like, I, I haven't run into a situation yet where people are like, no, like, we're, we're going to keep that close to the vest. Like that's not something that, that we want to give up. I think for me, the challenge has been through the rest of the process, actually getting them to hand those over at some point, whether that's when we show up for the assessment um, or even at the verification meeting. We've been using industry averages as well when they don't when they don't give them to us. Like we had a verification meeting yesterday, and it is you know also sort of a, a workshop then with them. I think as Matt Warren was talking about, you know, you can go through those costs and they say no, that's way off. Um, or you know, they, they can even give them to you on the spot as well. Um, so I, I guess asking for them has not really been an issue for me. It's more of them coming through with them and, and being strategic and tactful in terms of actually obtaining those numbers from them through the next couple weeks. So that, that for me has been kind of the challenge. But, you know, when I'm in the concept meeting and um, Larry and I have talked about this, you know, phrasing – that sheet as a tool that helps them. You know, this really isn't for us. Our, our costs are going to be our costs. Our price is going to be our price, really no matter what you put on that sheet. So it really, and those are obviously just words you know, to them in that moment, but it's true. Um, so for it, it really is a tool and an exercise for them as much as it is on the back end for us to, and helpful for us. Um, so trying to phrase it in that way, you know, this is a good benchmarking tool. Oh, you all haven't benchmarked before. Do you know what benchmarking 
the building is, and sometimes you know they have done that, other times they haven't. But just presenting it in a way that it will assist them moving forward, even if they don't end up signing a, an agreement with us, at least you know that it, it's out in front of them. Uh, so that's and that hasn't caused much, real, you know backlash in terms of them being reluctant in at least trying to get those numbers and figures but again actually obtaining them is a different story i have a question for you guys yeah so you go into these verification meetings and you go through and you use benchmarks and they haven't come through followed through with their their promise of getting you these costs do you do you workshop that i guess you workshop that verification meeting or do, do you get them interested enough to go back and look at their costs and then have a second verification meeting, almost like a, a part one, here's what we think, and then a part two, okay, now that you've looked at everything and you know how important this is, you know, do, do you got do you go back and have a second verification meeting, I guess? That's what we're kind of calling it here in Columbia. Yeah, we have a, a pretty appropriate example, again, from the verification meeting I had yesterday. Um, you know, they – it was a useful exercise for them in the moment to then now I think now go back and do that exercise on their own and really look at it. And they were apologetic and not getting them to us. You know, they recognize that they're really busy and the lady I was trying to get them from, he's like, Oh, she hasn't gotten those to you yet. Oh man, I'm sorry. Like I told her a few times. Um, but now, you know, they're, they're going back and probably running those numbers on their own. Um, and, Whatever that gap may end up being is what we're going to have to now sell maybe in a second verification meeting, mm-hmm. like you said, Roger. But we don't have anything on the books, I'd say. We have like a solutions call set up for next Friday um, to maybe discuss, you know, moving forward and perhaps the findings that they found on their own after we brought that to light to them and, and a little light bulb went off. Um, but, yeah, I think now there's, there's an opportunity for them to go back and, and take a look at that. I don't know if that answers your question. You know, it's it's interesting because when we don't have the costs and we're going through the verification, it's almost like a lot of times they're starting to see it like, okay, yeah, you know what, I can I need to kind of really start looking at what I'm spending to see if this really makes sense or if this is something that we could benefit from or whatever. When really that's the whole purpose of the verification meeting. <laughs> You know what I mean? And so it's historically for me personally is whenever we go, I go through the verification and say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and pull my numbers and look at it and, you know, and I'll be back in touch. Those de- those are deals that typically for me die. You know, hey, I've looked at it or, you know, we're going to, we're going a different direction or we're going to, you know, they just, for whatever reason, whether they truly do do the evaluation, it's not justified because, um, and that's really the the discussion point is if we don't get the cost, at what point do we say, you know what, I, this is either a red flag because one, they're not engaged in the process, two, it may be the wrong person, or are they just taking the information I'm giving them and then going to use it to get their current people to tighten up, you know? I, I well, feel that. that I, I feel like that, that happens. Um, so, Ken, when you run into that scenario where you haven't obtained numbers from them, 
during the cost analysis piece of a verification meeting, you know, are you rather brief in that moment and focus on other things and their pain? Or like, how, how do you navigate that? Are you using industry averages? Like, are you given an opportunity to now? Oh, yeah, I mean, I've, this stuff? For, for sure. I, I, I've, I've done all the above and, and, you know, industry averages, you know, tried to get them to, to bring those costs to the verification meeting and, and, oh, no, though, you know, especially when they try to tell you, oh, I know what those costs are. Just come, you know, with what you've got and, you know, we can share those at that time. Um, it just seems like whenever those scenarios actually play out, there's not, there's not a, there's not as high of a closing rate, if you will. They kind of tend to like drag on and well, you know, let me, let me pull those together. You know, let's really look at it or, you know, let us think about it. Let us evaluate it. Um, and then just time goes and time goes and time goes. And then they finally just go silent. And then some of those, you know, whenever they have major problems, you reach back out to them like, oh, you know what? Yeah, we need to sit back down and talk about it. And then, you know, you can re-engage them. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's a true defined answer that there's a perfect way to handle it. There's a perfect way not to handle it. But I will say the opportunities when you when you go to do the survey and they hand you a folder of energy bills repairs, like they are engaged. One thing I'm, I'd like to add um, with Cardinal Newman, you know, they had ninety three pieces of equipment and they only had twelve thousand five hundred dollars in major repairs from the last year. But but when I got up there and did the survey. They had 10 big old units that are down. They had all kinds of issues. So when you ran the industry averages on major repairs, it was supposed to be like $45,000, $50,000. So they had only spent $12,500. So what I was able to do was in, in one of my slides, I had on there a, a list of all the units that were just not working. And there was like 10 units that were not working. And then some of the major things that I found on the survey and I was like, just because you have $12,500 in major repairs doesn't mean, you know, you just didn't fix stuff. <laughs> you really, it really should have been about $40,000 that you should have spent last year on major repairs, but you didn't spend it. So making clear that just because they had $12,500 in major repairs, that doesn't mean anything if they needed forty-five or fifty. That was something I learned. Uh, they were grossly underserving their building by not fixing those things that should have been fixed when it went down. Yeah. Just something to keep now, in mind. A question in that scenario. Did you receive those costs before you did the survey or did you those costs after the survey? I got them before the survey. Okay. And that is a perfect case in point of the benefit of getting costs before you do the survey. Because mm -hmm. if they give you costs and they're hardly anything, you know when you do a survey, you've really got to open up every panel, look for new contactors, look for new compressors. And if you can show them and say, look, at, here's a picture of a compressor with, you know, a date of three months ago. You know, you gave me $3,000 repair, so you're telling me that, you know, is, is that compressor included in that? And, and so my point being is, is it definitely will help you guide and direct that assessment or if you have a lot of big stuff you know big major repairs you want to 
figure out, okay, what 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 kind of things are they to replace? And you can show that. Because I've had scenarios where they give me their cost of, you know, I thought it was extremely high. I'm going to look at their equipment. I'm like, what in the hell did they spend so much money on? And then and I started asking questions. Oh, that included the replacement or we installed a new unit. I was like, oh, okay, that makes, you know, it makes more sense. Versus me yeah. like thinking, man, I've got 30 grand of repairs to play with. You know what I mean? I, I learned my lesson on that uh, the hard way with Southern Way. Part of the major repairs they gave me was a $15,000 replacement cost. Yeah. And you can't and you take it out. You can't put that in there. Now, the story's not great. Well, I, I didn't know any better, so I put it in there as major repairs was a $15,000 along with a couple other things. And, you know, it's, it's not right. It's not... It's not accurate. It doesn't. You can't put replacements in to major repairs. Yeah. I think Julio's trying to get in there. Julio, what you got? Y'all mute, buddy. How are you folks handling the difference between major repairs and parts and materials? I often find those lumped together. And then, and secondly, if there's time at the end, Roger, maybe we could talk about capital spend and how that's being handled. But right now, we're talking about major repairs. Do you folks oftentimes run into where somebody's just lumping those together? Does it matter? Well, I mean, usually when it comes to major repairs, um, if it is all lumped together, I usually ask, what is, you know, what is the difference between operational and capital costs to you? And sometimes it'll break out to where it's like, oh, if it's over $3,000, it's considered capital. Okay, well, how much of this is capital versus operational? And then I break it out to where major repairs are the capital stuff. And that leads you down a whole, a whole other rabbit hole of, okay, what happens when you, you know, you have to pull capital to get a unit back up and running? Like, what is the process? Like, you know, is that... Is there a budget for that? Is this eaten or taken away from something else? And so that's when I get into that because if you're able to come back and say, hey, I can completely protect you to where capital, you know, things like this, these compressors, these blower motors or whatever that hit over the threshold are no longer going to impact you, you know, in that way. So that's just a, a, an extra question to get a better idea of what that lump is when they send that together or send that over all together. So Julio, sorry, um, Rob. So just to kind of summarize there, you are asking, you know, what scenarios fall under like a maintenance budget and what scenarios fall outside of that and dip into capital. Yeah. So sometimes there are differences, like sometimes there aren't and capital is just replacing or like, you know, whatever. But then other times you'll go in and if you're with a, uh, you know, if you're at a higher up level or whatever, you're like, what's the difference between operational and capital? They have a bucket of capital that they want to use to improve stuff, not to keep stuff from falling apart. And whenever you have small things that lead to big things like compressors or whatever, and that takes away from the capital, that actually ties their hands from being able to, you know, creatively, um, you know, use that towards something new, something else, like bringing in newer technology or whatever. So it kind of ties their creative hands of how they can spend their money. 
and sometimes you know that enough as a as a driver but yeah i mean just asking asking more questions never never hurts i um some of this some of what i do with parts and materials and major repairs i ask them it's because a lot of those parts and materials i feel like those are those are covered in most people's maintenance or contracted services. So, depending, I'd like to try to get a, a, a hold on what sort of maintenance agreement do you guys have? What do you guys buy outside of your maintenance agreement? Are you guys buying your own filters? Are you buying your own stuff for this uh, for for them to change? Because I do know people that buy that have a contracted service, but they also purchase their own filters and just have you know XYZ company change filters for them um have you guys is that something you guys do with when you get the parts and materials and uh contracted services or major repairs you kind of dive into that with them a little bit more because typically i leave it at zero because they've, they've got a maintenance agreement I'm a, well our logic is like oh it's probably all included on this stuff the way i talk about it is when we're at the flip book and we're at the pie chart and I'm going around, I always start at energy and then I go to the capital avoidance and I'm going backwards. And I say, you know, a lot of times what we find is if somebody has an in-house person, then they have a closet somewhere that's got a bunch of pulleys and belts and filters that that in-house person has as standby parts. And normally they nod their head, but rarely do it. Well, a lot of times the places don't have somebody that's dedicated that's in-house personnel, but normally I see that if they have in-house personnel, then they have a parts and maintenance or parts and materials closet. But if they don't have that person, then they normally don't have a, some random closet full of random parts and materials. So it, it is left blank. Carson, you had something, I think you were trying to get in a while ago. Is there something else you wanted to add? No, I was just saying. I was just saying that what Matt was talking about was deferred maintenance. When he was talking about Carson Newman or Cardinal Newman, um, Carson Newman would be a school. Sorry. Um, Go Eagles. Yeah, one of the things that we that when you're talking in your first appointment is is deferred maintenance. So that's just a it's just an element of of, of conversation and what you're looking for. So. Oh, that was it. I, I just, I'd throw that out there. Okay, thanks. Garson, how are you talking about deferred maintenance and when are you talking about deferred maintenance? It's just one of those things that you have a conversation with, especially if you recognize before you go in there um, that they have older equipment. It's just knowing your prospect, right? And knowing what they're doing now and just trying to understand where they are, what they're processes if we're talking about pain um, you want to understand what their pain is and if their pain is they've had a lot of problems and a lot of issues you talk about you know or a lot of costs associated with with stuff so you bring up so are you fixing everything when it breaks or are you deferring some things is, is, is getting money an issue is your budgetary stuff an issue so understanding what people's budgets are where they where, where they live currently um but a lot of our con, you know, a lot of the contractors out there, you know, have the traditional C two, which is not even really a C two. 
So they're they're invoicing, 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 invoicing. So you get around conversations like that of, hey, does that become an issue? Does getting 25 to 30 invoices a year, is that a problem? Is that a problem for your business? And, and is, do you always get it approved? Well, no, we don't get things approved. So when things don't get approved, then what happens? And then you can explain, well, shit, if you have a contact that somebody gave you a $700 you know, invoice to fix and you didn't fix it, well, you might be looking at a compressor. You know, if you've got a, a bearing issue that you didn't approve, well, now you might have a whole shaft assembly. You might have, you might be losing your whole fan housing. You know, so you de- you're deferring these things that we already take care of, and so you can that that that's the whole conversation around deferred maintenance. Okay. What else? What do you got, Roger? I, well, Julio asked the question about capital planning, and that is not my forte of, of answering that question. But I know I've got some people on this call that are great at, at discussing capital planning. Um, you know, that's a cost that is, is hard to obtain. It, 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 we don't need to obtain it from our customers, but how do you guys discuss that uh, in the verification? What? I was just saying to Julio, I want to expand on He's talking about <laughs> you, go, you go ahead. So the question, Roger is spot on in terms of the question, but in addition to that, a lot of times the prospective client will not really see this as real dollars, certainly it's not in their budget, but we know that it's real. At some point in time, there's some replacement that's going to be needed. When I find it even more difficult to talk about is when we talk about a 15-year life expectancy and the equipment is already quote-unquote expired, right? Maybe it's 18 years old, but clearly they know it's still working. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, a good a good strategy with that is before you even get into the nitty-gritty of, like, capital and keeping the conversation around HVAC, I usually ask them, you know, when it comes to capital, what are the future plans for the for the facility? Like, what are you trying to do, like, on a, on a bigger picture? And, you know, sometimes we'll be like, oh, well, we're planning on expanding or we're planning on getting a new piece of production equipment or we're planning on this, planning on that. It's like, yeah, I mean, I see I see that a lot. But you know what I also see? And they're like, what? It's like, what happens if all of a sudden these 18-year units that you haven't had a plan for interfere with where you're trying to take your company? Like, what would it mean to you if all of a sudden you have $150,000 worth of units that you have just taken for granted are running and all of like and a bunch of them fail this year after you spent your money to make your company go forward what what happens then and it's like oh well i mean you know then it's like we have to take money from other places to make it work where would you be taking it from where would you know how would that impact the direction of your business and where you want to take it so then they start to like you know get that like okay maybe i'm not okay and then you bring up the uh what was it? A uh, fifty thousand dollars in a in unbudgeted capital expenditure at a five percent net profit means you have to sell an extra million dollars in revenue in order to make up up for that. You know, how does that impact the overall business performance if something like that happened? You know, we can provide you with a plan that mitigates the risk of that and allows you to you know continue 
driving your business in the direction you want to take it without hiccups. So tying it back to the business of, of risk makes, you know, kind of makes that conversation go a little bit different. But yeah, I mean, I still have a hard time in the verification meeting with putting, okay, this is how much you should be setting aside each year. And they're like, well, nobody does it like that. And, you know, that, that kind of is a little bit of a difficult one at once. You know, and in, in sometimes in those conversations, when you're talking about, you know, their costs, and they can say, oh, we replaced the unit last year, you, know, you kind of can, based on who you're meeting with, obviously, but if you can kind of find out what led them to have to replace that unit, you know, was it because they lost the compressor, they're having problems with it, and so they kind of were weighing out, well, do I fix it versus replacement, and they opt to go ahead and replace it. Um, and they may not have had a whole lot of repair costs because of that exact reason. So you can talk to them. You can talk to what, moving forward, you know, if you've got 10 more units with that same age, if you lost compressor, does that mean moving forward your plan would have to be then replace these additional units? Well, you know, if you weren't on the hook for that compressor, would that enable you then to maybe have a different decision to keep that unit operating to get more life out of it. Um, so that's sometimes where, you, you know, you can redirect a conversation when they're talking about units they replace and, and capital. The other part of, of who those questions were, where I, where I kind of thought he was taking it, is that some companies have a, a different expenditure tier to where anything over a certain amount would be considered a capital expenditure versus a repair. And an example would be that they had, you know, if there was a major compressor and it was a $20,000 compressor, in some organizations that may be considered a capital expense to where they can get ownership or, you know, a different pool of money to help pay for that. And so, even though it came out of capital, it still would very much fall under our major repair costs. So sometimes if you see major repair costs that are low, you know, you, you need to, you need to, ask, you can ask that question. Uh, well, were there any things that maybe got put under capital versus, you know, operational repairs? And that can, you know, sometimes help with that. Kent and Ron, you guys make good points about the conversations that can be had around these issues, which is really the point of this document, to be able to open up the dialogue. But what number are you putting in there for capital spend when the equipment is already, let's say, round numbers, right? Let's say they've got $1.2 million worth of equipment, all 18 years old. What are you assigning capital spend for 12 months? Yeah, I mean... So are you asking what we put in there or like the first page of the verification where you're talking about asset value? No, I'm talking about what you would put in this financial analysis sheet. How much do you allocate for the capital expenditure well, on expired equipment? Well, well I was going to say, I was going to say, Julio, that's a really good question because I have a lot of clients here that have the same issue. So I'm all ears to whatever answer comes out because I'm trying to figure that out myself. Oh, I mean, you, obviously, you put it in the system analysis, it's going to tell you you need to set aside $1.2 million or whatever it is. So I, I think when you get to that scenario, it's a different discussion. 
that displacement is inevitable, but what are you doing today to have that be more of a planned event over the next three, five years versus have to just run all on the ground and replace it all at once? But if you're running through that system analysis, how do you, if you have equipment that's older than 15 years, how do you assign a cost to that? Well, you assign the cost of deferred replacement, and essentially it'll come out negative. Usually it'll come out negative and just be like, you know, you guys are behind. Uh, It kind of sets the conversation up back to what I was saying earlier. It's like, okay, I know how this usually goes. Managers come and go, and they always want to make their budget perform. And sometimes that means not necessarily investing money where they should, so that they can save that year or save whatever. But then they move on and somebody else, it gets put in their lap. In this position, do you plan on being here for the next four or five years? Yeah. Well, then this is now in your lap and you have to deal with it. How, you know, do you have a plan for it? And then usually it's like, well, I don't know. We plan on this, that, and the other. It's like that's when you tie back in what are the future plans for this business and how is this going to impact you being able to take it to where it wants to go if you were able to budget this out and actually have a plan that's you know forward strategy it's not going to all you know everybody else's previous um you know neglect isn't going to cripple you if you have a plan because you didn't sit here for 18 years and just not replace this stuff but it's it's a a challenge that you're going to have this is how we can help and then, you know, going on through, but getting the buy-in of like, yes, it's a mechanical piece of equipment. Replacement is inevitable. Do you want to have a plan for it, or do you just want to take them to the face as they come in the middle of summer? And then, you know, digging into have you seen lead times on units? What happens if three of these units in the middle of summer go out and you can't get a replacement for eight, eight nine months? What's that going to do to your, you know, your business, your profit, your, you know, and then you start digging in and all of a sudden it kind of like starts to snowball up to where a problem that they never have given any thought to becomes a big problem that's like, oh, I need help. And it's like, well, this is, you know, this is where we fill in. This is how we can help, blah, blah, blah. Shore up what you got, lay out a, a planned strategy proactive as we can be and we'll help you take this one bite at a time so yeah Rob, and Rob that brings up a, a really good point and probably a point that if we're not talking about it we should be talking about it and that is if they historically have run to failure and they've got older equipment or a position to replace it you know helping educate them based on just the equipment availability that you know that that truly isn't an area that's a critical area can that area afford be without cooling for 10 plus months and the answer is no which you know almost every opportunity they're going to say well absolutely not then we've got to give them real life scenarios of of really the the shortage of equipment and how now there's a higher emphasis on really being more proactive on keeping systems operating, but also doing more planned replacements. 
Because <clears throat> that's different. You know, that that has not always been like that, you know, throughout, you know, our time in this industry. That's relatively recent to where just the, the scarcity of equipment and the, and the lead times is... Yeah. Different. Does anybody have that sheet? Uh, the two quotes of the 12 and a half ton units that Brent put together where it shows two years ago, pre COVID a 12 and a half ton unit or cost was $17,800. And it was a two to four week lead time. And then from the same company, the same unit two years later, it is, it goes from 17,000 to $33,000. And the lead time was 40 weeks. That is a big mover when it comes to sitting down with people and being like, look, we've lulled ourselves into the Amazon Prime mindset of, okay, when it's a problem, I'll fix it. It'll be available. It won't be that big of a deal. Now the risk on your roof has doubled in, you know, the dollar figure of the problem. And now you also have the other, you know, needle to thread to where if it goes down tomorrow, you're not getting one for a couple of months, you know, minimal. So all of a sudden it's like, oh man, and then, you know, that's what we're doing is educating people on the changes and the things that we're, you know, well aware of. And that's kind of a, a way to make that problem immediate, make the, the need for a plan immediate need, you know, make the need for shoring systems up immediate. So does everybody have that example that Rob's referring to of that equipment quote? I'll set it out. No, but I'd love to have it. I'd like to show this is one thing that I've I, I use when I'm I'm working on this capital planning issue. This is with a church that I recently sold. It was a G contract, about eighteen thousand dollar G. It really is nice when they have equipment that's varying in ages, um, and when I'm looking at the the comparison chart. With them, I'm able to show them that this is the equipment value uh, number, and I I can show them that you've got about two years left of useful life on average, and red, yellow, and greening the equipment based on okay, the red ones are about 35 years old, 26 years old, the yellow ones are between 10 and 15 years old, the green ones are between one and five year old, and and really just having that conversation that. Um, these are just rough numbers, but you know, your all your equipment's about on average thirteen years old, and it's only going to last supposedly about fifteen years. So, you know, having that conversation using a tool like this as a, a risk assessment is something that I've found very helpful. And then we did one for the school. I was going to share that too. We did one. Now, is that Matt? That risk assessment is that the risk assessment assessment that your project guys are using? Uh, I don't know what they're using. I, I I couldn't find anything around here, so I had to come up with my own. Um, That's just something you just created? Yeah. This is what we did for District 5 that really um, they're wanting us to do on every school, I found out. so. But you know, they've got a bunch that are red. They've got a bunch that are yellow, but they've got some that are green. And then these over here, these two are like brand new. Um, uh, exhaust fans, but you know, be able to show them that 
uh, let me go to the top here, that within the next, all this stuff in red really should be replaced right away because it's already 15 to 18 years old. Oh, excuse me. It's actually 25 years old. Um, the stuff in yellow is 15 to seven years old. But when you get down here with the stuff that's green, um, it's, it's like six years old and, and it's not really going to need to be replaced until eight years from now or nine years from now. But to be able to show them that, you know, within the next five years, this school, this school alone is, is going to need $780,000 to replace the equipment over the next five to 10 years. It's going to need $637,000. And then, uh, in 2033, somewhere around 3,500, uh, this really helped to paint the picture for them, I believe. Uh, yeah, that right there is humongous. So, put together. Can you send that to me? Who just joined us? Who's CDW? Is that Daniel Wilson? Hi, Daniel. Just oh, okay, cool. Just came in a CDW guest. I'm like, uh, who's that? Yeah, I'm joining from myself. So. Um, Charles, I've got a, a hard out at one. I've got to be on another call at one. So I don't know what other kind of discussions you guys want to have about um, this topic. But I know, Charles, you had some closing comments and some stuff for us to think about for the next month. So I was going to let you wrap us up unless anybody else has anything they want to talk about. I think some some people, Matt, I don't know if you heard this when uh, was going on. They they'd like to see that spreadsheet that you had. Okay. Um, so, uh, just a couple things. One is that um, I would like for us. I'm planning for us to get together three times this year in person, and um, and I've already talked to some folks to uh, uh, come in and and spend half day with us. Various topics. Um, I'll tell you the, the, what I've got in mind first, and then we'll throw out some dates, and we're not going to nail anything down right now. I'm just throwing it out there so that we can be thinking about it. Um, one uh, one session in person, I've asked Todd to come in to talk about selling the gap, and then also um, the whole, some of the dynamic conversation, um, not specifically into beyond what he was uh, sharing at the um, at the uh, sales kickoff in terms of the um, uh, role play and things like that. He just had some other things that he would like to, to share, you know, just with our group. So that's one. I've, had, I've talked to Fawn Allen, um, you know, for her to come in and, and maybe, you know, drill down into the verification um, packet, you know, that she reviewed with us at ComEd. She says she's more than willing to come in uh, to meet with us, so that's one. And then Eric Smith. Um, you know, Eric has shared some things with me that he would like to um, uh, come in and, and share with the group. And, and it won't be the whole half day of just each of them. It'll be other things that we can do, but primarily it's going to be geared around some of the things that they wanted um, to share with this group. So that's my idea. That's the plan. 
um, and and in terms of topics and, and who we're going to be um, having come in. Um, I'm just, I just went through my calendar a little while ago, and I'm just throwing this out. We can think about it. Nothing's going to be decided right now. But I was thinking about the possibility of sometime in April, uh, maybe the possibility. I know you give it the summer months. It's a crapshoot. we got to figure out who's doing what, and I don't know how it's going to work out with everybody. But, you know, maybe sometime in July, I'm going to say, maybe vacation month, just think about it. And maybe sometime, you know, September, October, something like that. So just food for thought right now. Um, I wanted just to give you an idea of what my thoughts were about that. And then, um, you know, we can, uh, you know, start drilling down into some specifics in terms of planning calendar-wise. Um now that everybody's got some idea about it. There's no need to have any discussion right now. That's not the point. Um, but, you know, just be thinking about it, and then let's put our heads together and try to figure out how that's going to work best for everybody. So that's really all I had, Roger, just to throw it out there. Well, well no, I'm sorry. One other thing um, besides that. Well, first of all, any questions about that? I know we're not going to have a discussion about dates and drilling in, but just the idea you know, what we're wanting to do, you know, three times um, this year in person. Matt, I, I see your hand up. Yeah, I raised my hand. Did you like that? Well, I see Matt and Matt had both. Uh, yeah, I'll get back so, to Kent's point. I should have said, Matt Warren, I saw your hand up. Matt Nesson, I saw your hand up instead of just saying Matt. So, whoever, whichever one wants to go first. Matt, Matt, let's, let's say that. I, I was just going to ask, is this going to be like a, this is going to be in person, right? Yeah. It'll be. And it's going to be like a full day or a half day. Half day. We'll come in, maybe start at nine o'clock, you know, end up around lunch, have lunch together, and then everybody can kind of cut us. Uh, I don't want to take everybody's all day. I know a lot of people are going to be traveling. The, you know, logistically, it just makes sense to have it in Columbia just because everybody's coming from all points. So that's that's the other thought. I don't know if that answers your question or not. And you just said you just want us to shoot you a couple dates in April, June, and September? April, June, July, September, October, something like that. Just be thinking about that. And we've got some time. I don't want to put it off because we need to go ahead and you know, for the sake of planning, go ahead and get that nailed down here, you know, fairly soon in the next few days. Well, I would think for now we look at the same time we already have this call scheduled for that Friday, right? I mean, 28 was what I was looking at, July, whatever that last Friday is. Um, so it's, that, a, it's the 28th. Yeah, okay. So, yes, Kent, you're right. It would be when we normally have, uh, it would be on last Friday. That's what I'm thinking about. So, Matt, gotcha, man. You gotcha, man. I'll, I'll tell you right now, I won't be able to make it. I'll be on my honeymoon that day. No excuse. Uh, oh, come on, man. Be, be easy on me. Man. All right. Well, we'll, we'll okay. I got you. Uh, we'll figure that out. We'll figure that out. Matt Warren, did you have something else besides that? Uh, no, I just I sent everybody the two risk assessments that I think are good examples in the Excel format so that you can just put your serial numbers and model numbers in there and play with it. Um, and I also sent the grading scale from A to F so you can see and show the customer 
we're not just shooting from the hip here. We know that if it's a, if it's got rust on it and it's between five and ten years old, that it's probably a C. You know, if it's an F, that means it's not working at all, or it's just so. I put that in the email as well. If you want to use that, or um, I, I like to put that into my PowerPoint at the very end and kind of bring it up as I bring up the assessment. That it's like, oh, if you if you ever wonder where we got this grading scale from, it's not just a random thing. It's actually a a set scale. So I hope it's helpful. And if you have any questions, let me know. I I worked a lot on that um, risk assessment piece to try to get accurate numbers. So that's great. Thank you. And looking at April, the uh, April the twenty eighth, which was the last Friday in April, that's the uh, date for the uh, diamond event. Yeah, all right, so diamond, wedding, all that's off, you know, for April. So we'll, we'll, we'll back up and take another look at that. And, and like I said, you know, and I appreciate y'all bringing that up because that helps us to eliminate, you know, some things that are just kind of glaring, you know, that wouldn't work. So um, we'll, we'll work through that. I know we're about out of time. The last thing that I wanted to do um, was to, with this peer group that's up here right now, is to give a big shout out and congratulations to Roger um, and Matt on the, um, the huge win for District 5 and, um, you know, just, you know, everything that that brings along, you know, with it. So, uh, uh, you know, he's, they both heard me congratulate them already, but I just thought it's important, you know, with all of us here, you know, to be able to congratulate him. First time first time in this early, that I'm aware of, um, so especially for for a, for a maintenance program, so I'm outstanding and um, a lot of work has been done, but it's a whole lot of work that's got to be done still. With all yeah. that. So. Thank you, Charles. You're right because I'm about to jump on our kickoff our kickoff planning call with D5 uh, in two minutes to start that maintenance on on Wednesday. <laughs> so we're gonna be doing. I'm jumping off to go get on that call. Thanks, right guys. Now. See you. Right, Thanks, guys. Thank y'all. That's it. See. <clears throat> hey, Bill. How you doing today? Doing well.